In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Judges chapter 7. God sends Gideon to confront a massive army of Midianites with only 32,000 men. But God says that's too many. How about 300 instead? After Gideon tested God several times in our last chapter before believing his word that he would lead the people to victory, now it seems that God wants Gideon to know that the Israelite conquest over the Midianites is not because of their strength, but because God is with them. Good morning and blessed Holy Week. Today is Holy Wednesday, April 5th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is supported in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, a ministry that provides Lutheran resources in various languages around the world. You can learn more about their work and how to get involved at lhfmissions.org. Well, here we are on the eve of the Triduum on Holy Wednesday, and we're opening up Judges chapter 7. To help continue the narrative around Gideon is my guest, the Reverend Roger Mullet, pastor of Faith Evangelical Lutheran Church in Churubusco, Indiana. Pastor Mullet, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Pastor Boo. Good to be back with you. Well, how have things been going for you and your ministry this Lenten season? Or Well, actually, now it's Holy Week. We're a couple days into Holy Week. I pray that things have been going well. Yeah, very well. Uh, here we have uh, divine service every day during Holy Week, in fact. So um, eight straight days from Palm Sunday to Easter. Um, very grateful for the help of my, uh, my seminarian and my vicar. We're close enough to the seminary in Fort Wayne where we are in Indiana to... Uh, to have some students help out in our congregation loves that a lot. So um, it's it's always one of my favorite times of the year, even with the uh, increased workload. Oh, sure. Mine too. I, I don't have the luxury that you have in terms of being able to do all those services, but what a blessing to your congregation. Absolutely. Well, um, today we're going to be getting into more of Gideon's story. We've been discussing this for, well, we discussed it last time, and we'll be discussing it again tomorrow. But um, before we get into the text, I think it might be a good idea to start off in prayer. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, as your church here on earth celebrates this holiest of weeks in our church year, we pray that you would use this time to help us to turn our eyes to the cross of your son, to behold him in all his glory as he dies for our sins and is raised for our justification. Likewise, pour out your Holy Spirit that our faith might be strengthened through the proclamation of your word, that we might find in Gideon the promise that you work all things for us, not by our own reason or strength, but by your mighty, outstretched, and merciful hand. All this we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, for those who might just be joining us for the Gideon narrative today, do you want to catch them up on what's been going on so far? Sure. Uh, Gideon is really only called, of course, in chapter 6, but the oppression of Israel under the Midianites has been going on before that. Uh, Gideon is called out of, uh, as he says himself, uh, a weak household, a weak clan within the half-tribe of Manasseh. So already we get this idea that Gideon is not exactly the sort of leader and military power that you would expect, and yet he's the one that God will call to lead the Israelite army. Uh, and Gideon, I think, understandably so, is a little 
unsure about that. So in the midst of this call of Gideon in chapter 6, we also see a few signs that Gideon asks of God um, to sort of confirm what Gideon isn't too sure about. And this involves, um, among other things, uh, Gideon meeting the angel of the Lord face to face, uh, destroying the altar of Baal, which earns him kind of a funny nickname from his father, Joash. And, uh, and then we have the unusual sign of the fleece right at the very end of chapter six that gets us into chapter seven, I think, um, where we have two nights in a row, uh, a fleece laid out on the threshing floor. One night it will be completely dry while all the dew lays around it. And then uh, the opposite uh, to confirm that, that it really is God, the God, the Lord of heaven and earth and all that is in them who is speaking and calling Gideon. One of the things that we discussed yesterday was the appropriateness of him asking for these signs. On the one hand, you have this messenger whom he suspects is Yahweh, but I guess just wants to be sure. And then on the other hand, you have this message from God, and he's essentially putting the Lord to the test. Do you have any thoughts on it? It is kind of interesting, and it's we, we should be careful here, I think. Uh, Jesus, for example, in Matthew 12, says that it's an evil and adulterous generation that looks for a sign. And yet, in Isaiah chapter 7, uh, Ahaz refuses a sign, and God says, well, I'm offering, so I'm going to give it to you anyway. Um, there is a little bit of a tension there. Of course, one of the temptations that Jesus faces at the hands of Satan is, is to put God to the test, and that's how uh, our Lord rebukes him, is by saying, you shall not do this. Uh, so where exactly is the line? And yeah. I wouldn't want to draw much of a line and come <laughs> down hard and fast on it. Um, but we can see from God's response in giving him these signs. And I think that's much more what we would want to grab onto here is that God knows the frailty of our flesh. And God knows that we are going to have doubts about so many things that he has promised and said to us. And what we'll see also through chapter 7, then, as we saw in chapter 6, is that God does give us things to look at, things to hear, uh, things to watch happen that can confirm, uh, even for our failing human senses, what he has said to us in his word. And we'll see that continue, and we see it continue, frankly, uh, in the church today with word and sacrament. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned some of those other examples. I think also of like 1 John 4, where it says, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Um, so is he doing that? You know, again, I'm with you. Let's not come down on a, on a hard line. But what one thing we do see is that God is merciful and gracious. And I guess the best way we can put it is even if he's not supposed to be asking for these signs, God relents. He knows our weak flesh, as you pointed out. And I think that's a, that's a nice message about God's mercy anyway. And that does bring us into the next section where we have the sign of the fleece, and then uh, we have chapter 7. And I'm going to read, hmm, let's see here. I'm going to read actually just the first three verses so we can set the stage. Here we go. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. Yahweh said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, 
let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So God says, you have too many people. That's a, that's a surprise. Yeah, this is the opposite of a problem, right? Um, from the human perspective, we're like, no, 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 more is better when we're about to go and, and continue in our conquest of the promised land, right? I mean, we want as many people on our side as possible. And yet, of course, the Lord knows what's going to happen. And I think reading through, and I think this is a familiar enough story that we, we probably know how this one ends already. But to look back on this and see, you know, if we had so many people that we outnumbered or at least had more favorable odds against this Midianite army, we do tend to lose sight of the Lord's hand in things when things are too easy or when things make good human sense. Uh, and I think Gideon especially is in danger of falling into that trap. Um, so they're uh, already from 32,000 down to 10,000. So we have less than a third remaining. And of course, the number is going to get smaller and smaller than that. But I think really there in, um, in verse 2 is kind of the impetus for, for the entirety of chapter 7 lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Um, God is going to give them a victory, and not only give them the victory, but teach them through the process that that it is he, the Lord, who gives the victory. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I brought up you know, Gideon's testing, however appropriate it may or may not have been, of Yahweh, because now we have Yahweh really putting Gideon to the test. He's saying, here you are prepared. You're already well outnumbered, not to mention the fact that the Israelites would have not had the equipment and experience and the other military advantages that the Midianites would have had. But now I'm going to reduce your numbers down to 10,000. So God is trying to make it patently obvious that it is his work behind the scenes. I think that's something that in this day and age we all struggle with because we say, well, we put our faith, hope, and trust in God. And then we end up making idols out of our jobs and family and other things, our money, our possessions, uh, our health. And it's like, wait a minute now, these things come from God, but our, our old self wants to take credit for them. I think that's a struggle we all face. It absolutely is. And one of the things that I've kind of been pondering, especially during Holy Week, uh, strangely enough, is that I'm... I'm in my study almost every day. I'm in the church building almost every day. And during Holy Week, we're conducting services every day. Um, but that's not the norm for Christians, not, not for our people who go to jobs that may or may not have anything overtly to do with their Christian faith, who conduct their business and buy their groceries and do all these things. And, and very little, if any of that, has to do directly with their Christian faith. And it's so easy to lose track of our identity as children of God and how important that is for everything else that we do. Because by and large, we get along okay day to day doing our jobs and conducting our, our business and taking the kids to school and whatever else. We do okay all of that kind of ignoring or forgetting about where it all comes from and it, it all still works is what i'm trying to say from a human perspective the grocery store still has food on the shelves whether we remember that god put it there or not uh, and so it becomes very easy to fall into this trap 
uh, very easy to kind of lose track of those things. And that's why I think, um, among other things, you know, the continuing to gather together to have that grounding point that that once a week coming together where that's the only thing that you're doing with your fellow believers is receiving God's gifts and remembering who you are to, to ground you in that. Well, we have two stages of reducing the numbers. This is just the first. I'm going to read verses 4 through 8, which is the second. Here we go. And Yahweh said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I shall say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And Yahweh said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink the water. And Yahweh said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Um, obviously, I think what stands out here in this is not only God reducing them down to all the way down to three hundred men. I think of that movie, 300, right? But also... Um, the, the, the unusual way in which God determined who's going to be whom, you know, it, it's, it's whoever, it, whoever laps the water with his tongue like a dog. Um, is there any significance in this posture? I have heard so many different theories about this. And in fact, when I saw um, that Judges 7 was mine to, uh, mine to discuss, I immediately started reading like, okay, what's the deal with the lapping or the kneeling or the water in the hand. And there are so many different opinions about this. Um, you know, the one possibility that, that one author gives is, uh, well, to lap water, uh, you have to kind of be down on your hands and knees. And that's a very um, vulnerable position. And so this is not a someone who's thinking militarily, so to speak, that they're, they're kind of defenseless when you get down like that. Um, anybody who kneels down to drink, presumably, right, scooping, um, scooping it up and so on. Uh, so, so the position that you had, the posture that you have to maintain um, would indicate that the ones who are down lapping are, in fact, the worst military minds of the bunch. Uh, and so that makes it even more remarkable. Uh, on the other hand, um, I think, oh, who said that? I think Josephus wrote about it this way. Um, but anyway, um, on the other hand, it's, you know, they've, they've got their hands to their mouths. It's 300 men in verse six, uh, putting their hands to their mouths, which means their eyes are up and they're alert. So maybe these 300 are in fact the best of the military minds because they recognize we have to keep our eyes up no matter what we do. Um, I'm honestly not sure <laughs> if there's any kind of significance to this at all. Um, my kind of cop-out answer is the, the short, the short answer is that this is the mechanism God uses to get us down to 300 men. And that's the important part. Um, but I, it's, it's an odd little, it's an odd little thing, isn't it? 
I mean, it is, because you could say, well, okay, this is just the mechanism God used, but God then also inspired the writer of Judges to relate to us what the mechanism was. So at the very least, there must be some level of interest or significance for us to uh, to see in it. On the other hand, he doesn't tell us what that is, so we're only speculating. I read, too, about this idea of, you know, the military-minded people are going to keep their eyes so that they can see around them and their peripheral vision. But I think that, and I'm not saying it's not true, but I think that betrays the idea of reducing the numbers. It's not as though this is going to be a, a SEAL Team 300 here. You know, this is supposed to be right. uh, a demonstration of God's ability over the weakness of the people. So reducing them down to 300 wasn't so that they could have a, a sleek elite crew <laughs> that could go in and surgically destroy the Midianites, but rather to demonstrate that their weakness uh, is no is no problem for God to work through them. So yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I don't think there's any sort of particular right answer that we can discern. But I just didn't know if you had uh, if you favored one or the other. I, I do. I mean, and for the same reason that you mentioned, I kind of lean the direction uh, that I, I do think it was Josephus who said that these 300, for whatever reason, would be the least fit for battle, uh, just because that's the way God operates all the way through the scriptures. The smallest, the weakest, the least expected. That's who God works through. Anything else before we move on to the next section? Uh, I think, uh, of course, in verse 8, they took provisions and their trumpets. Um, we're not talking about weapons, and that'll become obviously much more important in a few more verses. But even here, we do have this little hint, right? They take their provisions and their trumpets, and all the rest of them go home. It's just Gideon and his 300. Uh, everybody else goes back to their tents, which is, I mean, now they're flying solo. The camp of Midian is below them in the valley, and it really is just them. Let's read verses 9 through 14. That same night Yahweh said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Well, then he went down with Pura his servant to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand is that on the seashore in abundance were the, were the people. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream. Behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell down and turned upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Okay, brother. Well, as we read this, I, I notice a couple of things. First off, we know Gideon's disposition has been one of trepidation and fear. And so God says, if you're afraid, go down with your servant. And that's exactly what he does. <laughs> so starting there, you know, why are we not surprised, I suppose, that Gideon takes the Lord up on this offer to go be reassured yet again that God is going to do what he says? Yeah, it follows the pattern that we've already kind of seen in, in chapter 6, uh, we've already seen the angel of the Lord appear in the fire consuming uh, the meat and the bread. We've seen the fleece twice, once dry and once wet. Um, 
I guess it was the other way around now that I think about it. Wet the first night and dry the second night. But anyway, uh, and now it's just another one. Um, God continues to be patient with Gideon, uh, continues to reassure him every step of the way. And I think right on the tail end of reducing his his forces from 32,000 down to 300, I think most of us probably would want a little reassurance. Um, this one truly is in some ways even more remarkable because it involves other people. Um, because now God is working not just through the angel of the Lord, as he did in chapter six, and not just through, uh, through creation, so to speak, with the dew or the lack of dew on the fleece, but now through two other people uh, re who remain nameless, uh, just two guys in the camp um, who uh, have a vision and an interpretation that God is now going to use through them to reassure Gideon um, of this of this battle and and the promise of of a victorious outcome. Well, but speaking of that, you know, he goes down, he just happens to come across them as they are <laughs> discussing this dream, which we know it's a God thing. But then the dream itself, he says, you know, hey, buddy, I, I dreamt about this cake of barley and it came into the camp and it knocked my tent over. And his comrade goes, well, that's the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God's given the camp into his hands. I mean, that escalated quickly, right? I mean, where does he, again, besides just... God revealed it to him. It just seems interesting that that's the conclusion he comes up with. Yeah, it's funny, right? I mean, there's nothing in a cake of barley rolling down the hill and knocking a tent over that says Gideon, the son of Joash, is going to defeat all the Midianites, right? Um, it, and that's that's why I think it's so significant, and and frankly, why um, Paul will pick up in in his letters to the Corinthians that like some of these gifts aren't actually useful unless you have somebody to interpret them. Uh, God gives the interpretation. We know that from Genesis, uh, that interpretation of dreams comes from God. And so that God gives it immediately confirms, I think, two things. First of all, the meaning. And second of all, that the meaning is true because it comes from God, that you can trust this meaning. Um, and so you have, <laughs> you have the barley cake, um, I think in Deuteronomy, uh, no, it's not in Deuteronomy, first or second Kings, maybe, um, where uh, barley is just a little, it's almost a little throwaway comment. I think it's in first or second Kings that barley is like the inferior grain. And so not only is it just a little cake, it's also a cake made out of the worst kind of grain, tumbled, right, which in English sounds very haphazard and not on purpose at all into the camp of Midian and comes up to the tent and runs into it so it falls and turns upside down. So this little insignificant cake stumbling down the hill knocks over the Midianites. And I, I think it really kind of builds on to, to purely human eyes how ridiculous this is actually going to start to look. That 300 men with Gideon are going to stand around the outside of the Midianite camp and it says, like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number on the, as the sand that is on the seashore. I mean, they're outnumbered by a ridiculous ratio. And yet, this is none other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. And that's the interpretation. That's what's going to happen. And that's the confirmation that Gideon needs. I think it's worth mentioning there in 14 that the interpretation says this is none other than the sword of Gideon, um, which, of course, won't be in this case. 
Right. So they they know Gideon, I suppose, because of their interactions. Gideon is the judge of Israel. So they they identify this as Gideon. But then they say God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. So Gideon's hearing this, as we'll find out in the next couple of verses. Um, you know, I read elsewhere that the barley, as you were illustrating here, is kind of the the food of farmers. It's poor food, as you as you pointed out, and so them them associating this probably isn't just because they had this strange esoteric dream and God completely reveals it to them, although He does. But rather, I think it gives us a sense that the average person is kind of worried. They they the person in the midnight camp, even though they're completely. Uh, more powerful than these Israelites, I think there's a um, there's a history behind Yahweh working for His people that has got to have them spooked. And so I think I think personally, me reading a little bit into it, I think all of that plays into this as well. Reading verses 15 through 18 before the, as we head into the break, it says, "As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped." And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for Yahweh has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them in empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise, and when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for Yahweh and or Gideon. So he is convinced, as the Lord wanted him to be, by this dream that God was going to be with him. But then he devises this plan. Um, just a few thoughts about it before we head into the break. It's a weird-sounding plan. Um, it, I mean, what kind of plan is this, right? Everybody's got a trumpet. Everybody's got a torch inside a jar. Um and that's all we're, we're just going to run up around the outside of the camp and blow the trumpets and shout, and that's going to work. Um, it is a little reminiscent of Joshua Jericho, of course, um, just a little. And, um, and, and it's, it seems, again, the, the, from the outside looking in, you know, just reading this in a vacuum, it looks a little ridiculous the way that God is, gonna, is going to give victory to Gideon and the Israelites. Um, and yet he leads with, and I think this is important, that Gideon leads the conversation with the Lord, Yahweh, has given the host of Midian into your hand. Um, that he can have that kind of confidence and the plan, wherever exactly it comes from, is this Gideon's plan? Does he have a little help from the Holy Spirit? Maybe a little bit of both. Um, look, here's the plan. And, and they just go and no one questions it. Um, when I come to the outskirts, do as I do, and we'll blow the trumpets, and we'll shout, and, and the walls come tumbling down, so to speak. Well, we'll discuss more about this very strange plan when we return from our break, and also the exciting conclusion. So don't go anywhere when we come back. Pastor Mull and I will keep on going through Judges chapter 7. We'll see you on the other side. Oh! 
These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me this morning is the Reverend Roger Mullet, pastor of Faith Evangelical Lutheran Church in Churubusco, Indiana. Friends of Faith, if you have any questions or comments about today's show, I want to hear from you. Email me at pastorboo at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook. Let me know what's on your mind. And if God is blessing you through this program, don't forget to share it with others who might also want some inspiration and encouragement. Thy Strong Word can be heard on AM 850 in St. Louis. You can stream it anytime, anywhere at KFUO.org or on the KFUO app or on your favorite podcasting app. I'm grateful to you, dear listener. We're here because of you. Well, Pastor Mullet, so we were just getting into the actual plan that Gideon would use to uh, to uh, defeat the Midianites, uh, spoiler alert, but this plan itself... It doesn't involve weapons. We don't think about them saying, well, let's get a bunch of weapons and we're going to attack and we're going to slaughter them. Not that the army of Israel hasn't used those tactics in the past, but it probably wouldn't work this time regardless because, A, there's 300 of them, and, B, uh, the other army is just so outmanned and, and, and they have so much better equipment and experience. Uh, so I think there is something to be said about this very strange plan. God certainly works in mysterious ways. Yeah, it's actually, I mean, of course, we know how the story ends. It's actually a brilliant tactic um, because, from again, from a military perspective, outside looking in, if you've got 300 guys up against, it, um, it's hard to know, I guess, exactly how many. When you get into Chapter 8, we can add those numbers together and come up with 135,000. It's not, I guess, 100% clear if that's all of them or if that's only a third of them. Um so, I mean, we could be talking upwards of 400,000 uh, Midianites down here in the valley that probably be on the high end. But even so, if you've got 300 of them and you're like, well, you got to go fight them, your instinct is still, I think, to grab your sword and give it your best shot. Um, this really is a this is a pretty um, this is a pretty brilliant plan uh, because this is going to be defeating them in, frankly, the only way that's going to work. Uh, and it really is, for lack of a better term, it really is psychological warfare. That's how this is going to play itself out and why it works. Yes, some psyops for the ancient Israelites here. <laughs> well, let's see how it plays out. I'm going to read verses 19 through 23. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars, and they held in their left hands the torches, and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for Yahweh and for Gideon, and every man stood in his place around the camp. 
and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, Yahweh set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abelmolah by Tabah. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. We're going to stop right there. So, yeah, it, it seems to work, but it works in a way that maybe is also unexpected. Um, there is bloodshed, but not by the hands of the Israelites. Yeah, they panic, right? Um, and that's that's kind of what we see happening here. And from the perspective of the Midianites, I think when you look up out of the valley around the rim around you, if, if that's exactly what the geography is, that's kind of the implication, I think. Um, that you'll immediately hear all the trumpets, see all the torches, and you also hear the smashing. Uh, and you look around and you think, well, if an army is closing in on us, certainly not every single person is going to have a trumpet. Certainly not every single person is going to have a torch. So for every one of these trumpets, there are more soldiers behind him. And for every one of these torches, there's more people behind them, uh, which is part of why this works. Uh, but also the surprise, I think, um, so the, the timing of all of this, I think, plays a role as well. The beginning of the middle watch, so the middle watch would have been uh, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Uh, as you split the, the dark hours from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., you split that into three sections. So the middle one would be those middle four hours, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., and it's when they had just set the watch. So those who now are going to be on guard are just getting out of their tents to their posts. They're still getting their eyes and their ears acclimated to the darkness after having been, uh, having been inside their tents. And so this is right at the, at the changing of the guard, so to speak. So it's easier to catch them off guard. It's easier to throw them into this panic. And when they all blow their trumpets and shout, I, I mean, the, the instinct, I think, is, is kind of, panic. Um, we're not ready. We're not dressed. We're in our tents. We're sleeping. Um, and so they turn and it says that, of course, Yahweh set every man against his comrade. It's part of the panic. They start swinging at anything that moves. Um, and, and God uses that sort of panic, even with this tiny number of Israelite soldiers. Uh, although I don't know if they should be called soldiers in this context, really. Um, this tiny number of Israelites, even against such a massive army, um, God uses these little means to to give the victory and to drive them out. So it's dark. They're confused. Of course, God has his hand in it all. They're not dressed. They, they, As you said, they just see things moving in the dark. They start slashing and slicing, and they are really defeating themselves. And I, I think about this idea of being surrounded. Now, from the point of view of the Midianites, I think of being surrounded by like an unknown and it connects it to today because I think of going through life and we think, we look out there and we say, you know, um, I, I feel like everyone is against me. I feel like the whole world has gone away from God. I feel like everybody is looking to attack me. And I think we sometimes panic in the same way that these Midianites panic as they're being really accosted by a smaller force than they knew. I, I think while I'm flipping the roles here, I think there's something for us to learn there too, that the, the 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 people who are out to get us, so to speak, I believe, are a lot smaller than we than we pretend, 
and especially when we consider the fact now, flipping it again, that God is on our side. So even if we were only 300 against our enemies of this world, having God on our side is certainly to our advantage. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about persecution and enemies of the church, and, and we pray about these things most every Sunday, and, and it, it's hard to know for sure. I think um, more than anything, we look around and we see, I mean, frankly, at least in my context, when you look around the world around you, what you see more than outright opposition is just indifference. Um, now, we know in terms of faith and salvation, we know that ultimately that's going to lead to the same result. Uh, and yet, uh, you're absolutely right. When we know that we have God on our side, frankly, it doesn't matter what the numbers are. Um, somewhere in some church father, maybe it was Luther, I need to write these things down, um, God plus is always a majority, right? God plus one is always a majority, which is simply to say, if you have God on your side, it doesn't actually matter how many enemies there are. You're going to win. Um, and I think it's significant. I don't know how far you want to go down the um, the symbolic and the application just yet, because we haven't quite finished the passage. But I think it's significant that both trumpets and torches, which is to say trumpets and light, become symbols of the word of God in the New Testament. Uh, and even here and there in the Old Testament, I mean, what are they fighting with? They're fighting with trumpets, which always accompany angelic proclamations. And they're fighting with torches, with lights, the light in the darkness, Jesus is the light of the world, and so on. Um, I, I think there's a lot that we can grab in there, too, um, that, you know, whether we're the Midianites and not actually outnumbered, even though it may seem that way, or if we're the Israelites and we're looking at this vast number of unchurched, this vast number of folks that need to be given the gospel, what do we fall back on as our weapons? Not only against those who actively persecute us, but against a world that frankly seems indifferent so often, our weapons are the word of God. That's what we fight with. Absolutely. And, and, and the word of God is what they're fighting with, because the only word they have is that God will be with them and that he will deliver them into their hands. Now, verse 23 is interesting, though, because, well, Gideon's numbers increase by, by nature of what happens next, because verse 23, as we've already read, says, And the men of Israel were called out, presumably by Gideon, from Naphtali and from Asher and from Nasa, and they pursued after Midian. So even though we have the attack of the 300 in this unusual way, we have the confusion. There are still plenty of Midianites who are, well, they're runners, right? They're running. They're afraid. They've escaped the melee. And now the rest of the people, or at least these in proximity to where they're running to, are called by Gideon to help, you know, attack and, and finish them off. Um, any Anything we can see in that part before we read the rest? Sure. I mean, presumably this is... At the very least, the rest of the, whatever the math would be, 29,900 who went or who were sent back to their tents when the number was being reduced and reduced and reduced. Um, but it's more than that. We'll see in verse 24 that it's also all the hill country of Ephraim that's called out as well. Um, and I think here again, um, I mean, I tend to, to lean into, into some of the, the symbolism that we can find here, which is we've got this little number, this little 300, and God is 
in the midst of this victory. He's carrying it out in our midst and then joined by all these other people of God on every side coming out who then run with us. I cannot help but think of the book of Hebrews and being surrounded by the cloud of witnesses. Now, I know here in Judges 7, they're all living, obviously. Um, but I, I think there is something in there somewhere, um, as I as I say often to well, some of my people and especially to my vicar and my field worker, that'll preach. Um, we could we could work a sermon out of that, that we don't <laughs> actually fight alone, um, that we fight not only remembering the cloud of witnesses, but so also the angelic host that God gives to protect us and defend us as well. Um, obviously, I don't want to go too far down and say that the men of Israel called out to support the 300 are only there to symbolize the angels or only there to symbolize the, the company of heaven, um, but that we can find that in our own day uh, because isolation and loneliness are a real thing for Christians, a real thing that we have to contend with. And when we contend with those things, it, it becomes difficult to keep up the fight, which I think is why Hebrews calls upon that cloud of witnesses to remember that we're not alone, that we have brothers and sisters in Christ, not only in our own places, but around the world and in the past who even still uh, rest with the Lord and so on. Well, let's read the rest because we get obviously some water here. We love it when water shows up in the scriptures. <laughs> 24 through verse 25, which is the end of our chapter. Here we go. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeeb they killed at the winepress of Zeeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Well, that's pretty convenient that they uh, captured these guys at the rock and the winepress named after them. <laughs> Uh, obviously a reminder that the author of Judges is relating this to people who would have known these places by these names, and now we know why. Uh, take us through this. Sure, yeah, right. That's exactly why they're called that, right? And this gives us a time and a place for the people now who will hear this account later on to be able to attach it to things that presumably still exist at the time. Uh, and we see that in, in Joshua, likewise with the memorial stones, for example, um, things that are so-called because they have that story attached to them that gives us historical uh, and geographical anchoring for the stories of, of God's deliverance and God's conquest of the promised land. Um, so now, in addition to Naphtali and Asher and Manasseh and the 300, now we have those from the hill country of Ephraim who are coming down against the Midianites and we're pushing them all the way to the water as far as Bethbaran, also to the Jordan. So that kind of gives us our boundaries. We are going pretty... This is, this is quite a ways um, when you put these things on a map. They're, they're chasing them quite a long ways. Um, this is a pretty significant victory, not only over the army, but also over the territory. Um, and, to, and to think again that that all started with 300 men with, with Gideon. Um, I would like to grab onto, it's, it's the gory part of the story, but they brought their heads to Gideon across the Jordan. I think that's a really significant theme in the scriptures, actually. Um, 
that it's it goes defeat obviously and we think oh well they cut their heads off and that's kind of weird um but uh it confirms the defeat but i think also when you when you think a little bit bigger picture in the bible when you look at for example uh david cuts off the head of goliath with goliath's own sword oddly enough um and that's just one example there's many many examples of these different places where heads are removed or heads are injured or what have you. And uh, the most significant, of course, goes all the way back to Genesis and the first promise made to Adam and Eve that the Savior, the seed of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent. Um, that, that this God continually, over and over and over, overcomes his enemies by removing their head. And I think on the positive side, then, what we can find as Christians is a lot more significance in recognizing that, as Paul says, Christ is our head. That even if the world tries to take us out by doing that, no, look, we have we have Christ as our head, and he has already defeated our enemy by crushing his head. And so I think we do see a little glimpse of that theme here as well, that, that God overthrowing his enemies, defeating his enemies in this uh, this victory uh, by by head wound, if you will. I stole that from another pastor. Um, but uh... <laughs> Well, I think that will definitely preach, and I appreciate that. Uh, with the waters, though, I, I know it would be too much to read into that, anything to do with baptism, but we love waters. Anything besides just sort of geographical markers there, you think? Um, I think that they're capturing the waters, um, that, it's, that it's not only the boundaries, but also that they take the water that the water now um is part of of their <laughs> their territory doesn't sound quite right but that's that's basically what i'm trying to say um and that it is mentioned that it is the jordan because of course the jordan right. plays such a significant role not all not only already in the old testament as we've come across the jordan into the promised land and so on but will continue to play such a significant role now, all the things that go with the jordan river um, that'll come up again in the books of the Kings. It'll come up again in the prophets and in the Psalms, even um, the Jordan River, that we can go and capture that, that we can have that is, I think, very, very significant when and there, I don't think it's insignificant to bring in a little bit of holy baptism. You consider mm -hmm. that these faithful own these waters um, and there is, there's something in there somewhere, I think. Uh, I might just leave it at, at he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But uh, Sure, sure. We can probably grab a gospel handle from that, but you got to be careful with it. <laughs> well, uh, you know, we have this chapter. In the next chapter, we kind of already know what's going to happen. And, and part of that is that there will be some of the clans of Israel who are not interested in even feeding Gideon's soldiers so we have these folks here seeming ready to defend. I think it is interesting, and we brought this up yesterday, there's a lot more infighting amongst the Israelites than we normally like to acknowledge. We think of them as sort of this unified whole group, but that's not the case. They, they have their own rivalries. They have their own uh, intertribal disputes. They have their own issues where they're fighting off local places, local peoples to to claim their land and everything else. Uh, do you want to speak at all to that about just this whole idea that here's Gideon, 
and he, it's not a unified force that he's trying to lead. Obviously, it's down to 300 here, but but still, he's up against not only the Midianites, but really his own people. Not everybody's on board. Yeah, this is a perennial problem with the people of Israel, um, whether they're turning one against the other or against Moses or... Uh, or whatever the case may be. And eventually, of course, the kingdom will divide and and so on. We're not quite to that point in, in Israel's history, but we're getting closer now in the book of Judges um, to where the kingdom will split. Uh, and this, this infighting, I think, demonstrates two things, one of which is to remember that the people of God are sinners, just like everybody else. Um, but more importantly, I think all this infighting and God's continued patience with the Israelites, God continued God's continued provision for the Israelites, God's continued uh, revelation to them. He continues to raise up leaders. He continues to give them the victory. God continues to keep His promises uh, to Israel, even when they begin uh, bickering with each other, as they're about to do at the beginning of chapter eight. Um, that He's He's still patient. He's still kind. He still remembers his promises. He doesn't go back on them because these are his people. I think that's an important reminder for us too, because if if you ever run across, you or anyone who might be listening with us, if you ever run across a church anywhere in all creation, Missouri Synod or otherwise, that is completely and totally without its clicks and infighting every so often, let me know um because that's the one i want to be that no i'm joking um <laughs> but there is you know what we see across christendom because we're we're sinful human beings no church no congregation is without this inner conflict and yet god still provides leaders pastors for his people god still provides word and sacrament for his people god still provides daily bread for his people. And I think what we can kind of rest on a little bit, if nothing else, is maybe particularly in this Holy Week as we consider also the cross of Christ and the ultimate salvation that we see provided for us there from God's hand is while we were still sinners, while we still fought against one another and sometimes against God, and while we still weren't quite sure about God's plan for us, and while we still weren't really sold on Gideon's plan for what's next for our little congregation of 300, God continues to provide because he knows that that's exactly what we need. We can trust that just as Gideon and those 300 got the victory from the Lord's hand, so we will have from the Lord's hand everything that we need in body and in soul. Well, I think that is a great message for us to leave with today, and we are here right towards the end of our time together. So I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Roger Mullet, pastor of Faith Evangelical Lutheran Church in Churubusco, Indiana. Pastor, thanks for being on the show. I pray that your Holy Week is blessed, your Triduum is well attended, uh, and I, I pray that you uh, are able to reach people with the gospel this Holy Weekend. Thank you very much. Great to be with you again. God's blessings to you and your folks as well. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, it is Holy Week, so I pray that you guys out there are, if you're able, are making uh, plans to go to your local LCMS congregation, a faithful biblical congregation that is having 
Monday, Thursday services, Good Friday, Holy Saturday vigils, if they have them. And of course, Easter Sunday, it's all building up to, well, the most wonderful time of the year. And that is when we celebrate in particular Christ's resurrection from the dead. But of course, we do that every Sunday too. As for us here on Thy Strong Word, we're going to keep going this uh, Holy Week as we discuss uh, judges. In the next chapter, we're going to see the Ephraimites, well, quite upset with Gideon for not inviting them to participate in the first conflict. But you just heard why. Still, it's a point of contention that, well, blooms into outright intertribal warfare. Even so, Gideon does manage to chase down the Midianite kings Zeba and Zalmunna across the Jordan. He captures these kings. He kills them for murdering his brothers. And the people are overjoyed. They're overjoyed with the deliverance that God had wrought through Gideon. But what do they do? They call for Gideon to become their king, him and his children. But Gideon declines. He says Yahweh is their king. But the question is, does he really mean that? Well, join us tomorrow as we explore some of the questionable choices Gideon makes and how it portends disaster for the future. And then we'll end this week on Good Friday with a special free text First Friday episode. It's going to feature myself and two guests, the Reverends Chris Amon and Jesse Baker. We'll be discussing Jesus's final words from the cross. So I hope you tune in to listen live or catch it on demand this Good Friday. Well, without anything else to say, and without further ado, until tomorrow, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.